from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana. This is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Today, we'll analyze last week's State of the Union address with Peter Baker. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. Biden is the third president Baker has covered with the Times, and he previously covered Bill Clinton and George W. Bush for the Washington Post. In between his time covering the White House at the Post, he was a Moscow bureau chief with his wife, Susan Glasser, who's also a journalist. In addition to Biden's State of the Union, we'll talk about his time in Russia, where he interviewed Vladimir Putin and co-wrote a book about the Kremlin with his wife. They went on to co-write two additional books, including their latest, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 through 2021, which was published last year. Also coming up, we'll talk about Kamala Harris's role in the White House as Biden prepares to officially announce his bid for re-election in 2024, and the White House response to the three latest unidentified objects shot down late last week. It's Wednesday, February 15th, and this is News Nerds. Just a note before we start my interview with Peter, uh, we recorded our interview on Sunday morning and kind of just missed the news that the military shot down another high-altitude object over Lake Huron on Sunday afternoon, so we apologize that we did not account for that incident. Here's the interview. It's been a crazy news week, and here to break it down with us is Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. He's covered the five most recent presidents at the Times and the Washington Post, and is the author of seven books. His latest book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 through 2021, was published last year. It's one of three books that he co-wrote with his wife, Susan Glasser, who's also a journalist and is currently a staff writer at The New Yorker. Peter, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So do you have any sense of what the process of writing this year's State of the Union was like? I mean, it was pretty long. It emphasized a lot of the the things that Biden has uh, accomplished over the past year. And in one of the articles that you wrote for The New York Times before the State of the Union was delivered last week, you kind of went over some of the, the typical Washington insiders. But then you also mentioned John Meacham, who's a historian and an author, Apparently, he also helped craft some of the State of the Union. Right. That's exactly right. So a State of the Union for any president is starts off as a real committee process. It's a policy forcing event because a couple of months before you have the event itself, you start gathering material from all the different agencies and departments which want to get something into the speech. And they want to get something into the speech because it's a way of of, of initiating policy or reinforcing policy or or what have you. And particularly in a bureaucracy, having a president mention your program or your policy goal in the State of the Union is a way to get stuff going when it otherwise might be stalled. So there's a big committee process that ha- happens for weeks, really months, um, before the speech even gets going. And then you have a, a speech writer you know, who's in charge of the pen. That's what they say. He's got the pen. That person is in charge of pulling together a, a speech itself with the advice of others. And in Biden's case, you know, one of his chief guys is a guy named Mike Donilon. He's uh, sort of been a, a confidant of the president's for many, many years and is said to have his voice really in his head. And then you have others begin to weigh in. A chief of staff will weigh in. A national security advisor will weigh in. Other senior advisors weigh in. Now, you mentioned John Meacham. He weighs in 
to sort of add a little historical heft to it. John Meacham has given advice to President Biden now on a number of his really important speeches, both during the campaign and the presidency, particularly like the inaugural inaugural address. And Meacham will throw in some references to Lincoln or, you know, Jefferson or something like that to kind of give it a little bit of of intellectual heft and a larger thematic resonance uh, to go with all this sort of more bureaucratic and political uh, language that might be in there from the other staff. And then finally, eventually you get to the point, which they did, of the president sitting down at Camp David with, with his top advisors. And um, they all went last weekend to Camp David and spent the weekend there. He practiced it. They went through it. One thing they're really careful about is making sure the speech for an 80-year-old president is the kind that he can read without any real trouble. Make sure you don't have any troublesome words or phrases in there that might make him stumble and make him look bad. And so you you keep going all the way really up to the to the moment of the speech itself. We've had presidents who were literally making changes in the car to the Capitol when they were about to deliver it. Do you think that the State of the Union has any use to the American people, or is it really just an opportunity for the president to kind of influence what yeah, people inside Washington think or to to just tout his or her achievements? Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, it's less useful to the larger public than it used to be, but you still have 27 million people watched this year. That's a lot of people, but obviously not just people inside the Beltway. The chance for them to hear their president uh, talk about his priorities and talk about where he thinks the country is. I say he eventually will be a she as well. And I think that there is still a real utility to it, Um, but it is an older format. And obviously in an era when everybody can watch anything they want at any given time, fewer people are watching than ever before. The 27 million who watched President Biden this last week was the second smallest number in the last 30 years. So it's 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 not the destination television it used to be. It used to be more like 60 million would watch. So it's about half that now. So what stood out to you as you were uh, watching the State of the Union? Well, I think what marked this particular State of the Union was the um, the heckling from Republicans in the audience and the president's response to them. Now, we're not usually like the British Parliament. You know, when the president gives a State of the Union address, it, nobody, in the, at least in the past, was expecting jeers and cheer, you know, I mean, people shouting at you. They're certainly not shouting things like liar or using, you know, an expletive as, as one of our reporters heard a Republican congressman shout. And that's a, you know, that's changed over the years, but it really came much more starkly this year. And what was good for the president politically was he responded to them and he engaged in this kind of a almost a dialogue with them over Social Security and Medicare. And that's what they wanted. They wanted something like that because they wanted to be able to show the public, see, this president is protecting Social Security and Medicare. It's an old issue for Democrats. It's a, usually a, a popular issue for them. And one that the Republicans kind of walked into his trap a little bit by letting him set the tone and look like he was in charge when they were looking like, you know, well, I mean, kids in your school would not heckle, I'm guessing, the principal the way those congressmen were (laughs) heckling the president of the United States. So he, in their view, he came across as the adult in the room. So is that why Biden emphasized bipartisanship? Well, it is, you know, yes, in that sense, he emphasized bipartisanship. It's been a theme of his for, you know, his whole presidency at this point. I think it's also who he is. That's where he came from. He spent 36 years in the Senate and eight years as vice president. And and during that time, there was more of a tradition of the parties working together at times, not all the time, obviously, but at times on important stuff. That's more or less gone. 
And he emphasizes that not because he thinks he's going to have a bipartisan agreement with Republicans these days, but because he thinks it makes it look, him look better to the public. I'm the grown up, as we just said, and they're the ones who are squabbling and being obstructionist. That's the hope from their point of view. The Republican point of view is our voters, their core voters who they uh, appeal to really want them to fight and that their voters don't want them to be, be bipartisan. And, and they, in fact, will be punished politically if they were bipartisan. What did politicians and advisors to Biden think about the speech? Well, they they were pretty happy about it. They had identified two places in the speech when they wrote it that they thought Republicans might heckle the president. And they identified it for him. They said, sir, here are the two places that you might get heckled. And they actually tried to be right. Those were the, uh, the issues that got Republicans uh, going. And in fact, they were really kind of baiting them. They wanted them, I think, to do that because they thought it would make them look bad. So they felt that the speech went really well. Again, for an 80-year-old president whose challenge is, is convincing the country to let him have a second term, which means he would be 86 at the end of his presidency, it was a chance to show that he had some vigor, that he was not too old to be to be president, which is a, con- a concern for them and a concern according to most polls. So I think for them, they feel like it came off pretty well. Did the speech look to you like it was a platform for Biden's future? Uh, I mean, it's looking like he'll run again. Do you think that the speech was a platform for that? I do. I think that was sort of an unofficial kickoff to his reelection campaign. Now he'll have a formal announcement probably in March or April. But yeah, I mean, he, in effect, was presenting his case to the public, right? This is probably the largest television audience he'll get for the whole year. So the largest number of people he's able to say, here's what I've done. Here's why you need to keep me uh, uh, here because we've got more to do. That was his theme, right? His mantra was finish the job. It was a phrase he used 12 times in the speech. So he really wanted to reinforce that with the public, finish the job. My guess is you'll see that phrase a lot more in the weeks and months to come. And that notion is we've got to start in terms of all the policy we put in place so far on climate change and health care and and uh, infrastructure, but we haven't uh, finished everything we need to do. And if you return me to office, his argument is we'll get more done. So you co-wrote an article about Kamala Harris's role in Biden's presidency, and it kind of really emphasizes some of the doubts that people close to the Biden administration have had about her. And from what I've read about the Obama administration, there was some uh, doubt about whether he would pick uh, Biden to be his vice president in the second term. Do you think that might be a, a route that Biden would take in this this future election season? Uh, the question whether he would dump Kamala Harris for somebody else in the yeah. ticket? I, yeah, probably not for a couple of reasons. That used to be more common. Presidents used to do that in the past. FDR did that twice. He actually had three vice presidents over his four terms. No president has done that since then and successfully won an election. Gerald Ford did it and lost re-election. I think it's because the conclusion is if you dump your vice president, first of all, what you're doing, you're saying to the public that the very first big decision you made as a presidential candidate was wrong. So nobody wants to admit that. And secondly, you offend the constituency that likes the vice president. In this case, you know, she's the first African-American vice president, the first woman vice president, first Asian-American vice president. And if you were to dump her, you would risk offending people who would say, well, wait a second, why are you getting rid of her? She's, you know, she hasn't done anything wrong and 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 so on. And it's not clear there's somebody out there who would be a stronger pick for him at this point who would, whose benefit would outweigh the cost of getting rid of her. 
So, you know, what they want is for her to be more successful and they're trying to do what they can to make her more successful. She's not going to be as tethered to Washington in these next two years. The last two years, uh, because we had a 50-50 Senate and she is, the, as the vice president, is the president of the Senate who breaks ties. She actually cast more tie-breaking votes than any vice president going back to John C. Calhoun in the early 19th century. So that was, that kept her tied to the Washington. She wasn't able to get out much. Now we have a slightly different Senate with the 51 votes in theory uh, of the Democrats, if you count Kristen Sinema in there. So she doesn't have to be in Washington all the time. And she's telling her staff, I want to get out on the road. I want to give more speeches. I want to uh, raise my profile. We'll see if she can manage to make that work. Right, because her approval rating is is below Biden's right now, which, which is, as you mentioned, the article, not very good. Do you think that getting on the road and, and distancing herself from kind of the more mundane aspects of of uh, you know managing the Senate will be good for both the both her public image and also the Biden administration. You know that's what the hope is. Um, look, let's just start with the idea that being vice president stinks. It's a terrible job, right? Sounds good, great title, just one word off from the best title. Al Gore used to joke that if he kind of covered his left eye and he's looking at the seal of the vice president, he you know could see it say president, right? You know, it looks like the really big job. But it's the truth is being vice president is miserable because you cannot do anything to overshadow your boss, but you also are expected to be visible and 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 making an impression. It's such a bad job. I mean, Thomas Marshall, who was the vice president for Woodrow Wilson, once joked. He said there were two brothers. One be, one went out to sea, and the other became vice president, and neither was heard from again. And that's sort of you know the view of the vice presidency. So it's it's it stakes just to start with, and then it's, it's extra burden for her. Because she's a first, because she's a first, there's a lot of burden of expectation. You know, there's almost certainly a double standard that some people are applying to her. And that, I think, has left her in a tough position. But a lot of Democrats, including, in fact, all Democrats in our story, we didn't quote any Republicans, are the ones who are frustrated that she hasn't done more, been able to break out more, to show what she can do to rise to the occasion and, and show that she could be the leader of this party if Joe Biden were to run again or for some reason had to step down. He is going to run, it looks like. So she's not going to have to run in this next election as a presidential candidate, but she could be a, a liability for the ticket if she's seen as unpopular because Republicans would use her as an attack line. They would say, if you're voting for Joe Biden, who's now going to be 82 as a candidate and 86 at the end of his presidency, you're really voting for Kamala Harris because there's a real serious chance she might become president. And that if if she's seen as unpopular, that's a bad thing. So she needs to get out there, show who she is. She's found her voice a little bit on the abortion issue. Democrats have really appreciated how strongly she has spoken out on that. That's been a positive thing for her politically, but she needs to probably convince more of them that she's an asset. So in the past few days, uh, two more objects have been shot down. Uh, the first one was over Alaska, and then the second one, which was yesterday afternoon, was shot down in Canada, actually, over the over, over the Yukon territory. What is the White House response? I mean, I haven't been hearing, I'm not sure that anybody has been hearing really very much specifics about these two events. Uh, what's the White House response? Yeah, at this point, they don't know enough, or they say they don't know enough to tell us things like whose craft these were, whether they were actually balloons, whether they were something else. So we don't know. If this is China sending more things over, that would be a very different situation, because it was one thing to send a single balloon, but if they sent others since the first one was shot down, it suggests a very provocative 
move on their part. And I think that would really be um, pretty explosive in terms of the relationship between these two countries, between the United States and China, if we knew that those two other ones or even one of those two other ones was Chinese. We don't know that yet. They're still uh, looking at the wreckage. They haven't told us what they learned from it yet. So that's important. The second one, for instance, was the size of a car, they say, which is smaller than the original one that was a Chinese balloon. The second one didn't seem to have its own propulsion or maneuverability the way the first one did. So it may not be that this is Chinese. We don't know that. But one thing we've discovered since the first one was shot down is that they're doing this very frequently. And in fact, the uh, Pentagon and State Department say that China has floated balloons over 40 countries uh, so far. So this has been a pretty active and aggressive program on their part. And I think that's going to completely upend the relationship if it turns out one of these other objects was theirs as well. And just to note for listeners, we're recording this on Sunday, on a Sunday morning, um, and this will be out on Wednesdays. Um, Lula da Silva, the, the new president of Brazil, who's kind of known for his work with the Amazon rainforest and, and climate change, visited the White House yesterday, and, and Biden and him talked about both, both climate and the attacks on both of their capitals. Do you think that that very much was accomplished in that meeting? And if not, what needs to be done now? Well, on the rainforest, this is a really important issue for people who are concerned about climate. The the, the trees are actually helpful in terms of fighting climate change, and you need a rainforest there. The fact that it's been deforested over the years is going to be dangerous to the climate. So he's got, that. Lula has a fund called the Amazon Fund that he's asked other countries to contribute to, to um, to help save the Amazon. The White House put out a statement with Lula saying that they would work with Congress to contribute to that fund, but didn't make a specific commitment. They didn't uh, commit to any particular money goal. And I think that was a little disappointing to the Brazilians, I'm guessing, because the Brazilian media in advance had floated large numbers that they expected President Biden to uh, agree to. And he didn't make a specific commitment, at least not publicly. But he did commit to, to something, and we'll, we'll have to see how much he, he he can get out of Congress, which is going to be a challenge given the Republicans right. in the House. The other issue, as you mentioned in the insurrection, Lula had basically uh, a very similar situation a, a month ago to what we had in January 6, 2021. He had supporters of his opponent, the one he defeated, ransack the government offices in, in Rio de Janeiro. And I think and he it really felt to a lot of people like a uh, an echo of of January 6th. So he and Biden could share notes about that. But, it, you know, it's a large issue with this democracy question is what, you know, where are our democracies going? Brazil, the United States are the two largest uh, democracies in the Western Hemisphere. So you, you've been covering the White House, but uh, you you did cover uh, Moscow with with your wife at The Washington Post. And your first book that you co-wrote with her was called Kremlin Rising. Um, in an old interview that I was listening to yesterday with, with you and your wife, you were talking about the interviews that you actually had with Putin. And, you know, I was thinking now that Putin's I mean, he's always been in the public spotlight, but especially now he's been a very, very big figure in uh, U.S. politics. What did you learn about him from your interviews, especially from those that went on for long periods of time? Apparently, he's a big talker. (laughs) He can be a big talker. He is. And he has he's a uh, he's got a power move. What he does is he will have you come in for an interview and then make you wait four hours 
before he even sits down with you. And then once you sit oh, down wow. with him, he'll talk for four hours. So it's like an eight hour, you know, ordeal or experience. And he he is a filibuster. He talks uh, at great length. He's a really interesting fella in the sense that he's very cold, very distant. There's no warmth to him whatsoever. He doesn't, you know, smile much. He doesn't, you know, he's not interested in you. He answers the questions crisply and sticking to his talking points. He knows his briefing book. He's often very hostile toward the West. These are all 20 years ago, by the way, just to keep be honest about our, you know, we were there a long time ago, but our experiences with him were that he was very, very well briefed, very cold. Each of my wife and I, uh, we had an interview separately with other reporters. Each time, the only time he got off his talking points, the only time he got kind of rattled or even a little bit was talking about Chechnya, which was the small republic within Russia that was in rebellion against Moscow. It's a Muslim majority republic. And Putin was waging a vicious and very aggressive war against the uh, the Chechens. Chechens were blamed for a lot of terrorist a- attacks. So there's a lot of anger in Russia, particularly by Putin. And he that's the one time if you challenge him on that, about how he was killing civilians in Chechnya or something like that, that's when we get angry at you and snap at you and, and kind of growl a little bit at you. And that's the one time you saw something, something other than his kind of robotic persona. I have one more question about what it's like to work with your wife and also work on the same thing, sometimes at the same organization. Um, do you guys ever drive each other crazy? Because I know a lot of Americans can't even stand to turn on the news. So what's that like at home? <laughs> well, I, I would guess it's a little like owning a restaurant together. You know, if you have a shared passion and a shared interest, it can be a good thing for a family and for a marriage. My my wife and I met at a newsroom. We met in the Washington Post newsroom 25 years ago. She was my editor on uh, the big story of the time, which was the Ken Starr investigation into President Clinton's testimony under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. So we we worked together before we became husband and wife. And so as husband and wife, we're used to that. That's what <laughs> that's how we uh, we got to know each other. So, we, yeah, we we're we, we enjoy it. We we have you know, we probably spend too much time talking about the news and politics and world affairs and all that, but uh, um, we, we've enjoyed it a lot. Well, Peter, thank you so much. That was my Sunday interview with Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. You can find his articles for the Times at nytimes.com slash by slash Peter dash Baker. is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. 
We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.